Tom, I don't know if you could just put the first one up, <laughs> please, which is just basically the title, which is Where Else Can We Go? Uh, when I got this passage, I have to say, I read it and thought, oh, goodness, this is tough. Um, and obviously, Richard was speaking on the beginning part of this, quite similar in overlap in some ways last week. But I thought, like he did, really, we ought to just look quickly at the context. So if I could just have the next picture, please. This is um, all I could find because it's one of Grace's books, The Miracles of Jesus. And there you've got the feeding of the 5,000, haven't you? Which, funnily enough, we talked about this morning. And then the next one is Jesus walking on the water, isn't it? And the storm. So I was thinking about the disciples and thinking, what was it like for those guys? Because they had been with Jesus for a little while and they watched him doing one thing after another. It was absolutely gobsmackingly amazing. And then they get to the feeding of the 5,000 and there's 5,000 plus women and children. Some people say it was probably 10,000 people. They must have been really excited, don't you think? Right in the middle of it. They knew Jesus. They're his close-knit friends. This is marvelous. What's he going to do next? So we get to this bit of the story, and the people have followed him, haven't they? And as Richard said last week, really, they were angling for another miracle. They wanted some more free food. Um, and Jesus starts to talk to them about, actually, that's not really what he's here for. He's really talking about something much more significant. And he wants to give them the bread of life, which is him. And then if I could have the next one, please. I think the disciples must have been listening to what he was saying, the bit we read last week, which is getting a little bit iffy. It's people getting a bit grumbly. You know, what's he talking about? How can he claim to be this person? After all, he's only Joseph's son. And I guess they're feeling a bit uncomfortable thinking, well, any minute now he's going to do a miracle and it'll be fine and they'll all be, you know, cheering again. But actually he doesn't. He goes on and actually he makes it worse really, because he says, I'm telling you the most solemn and sober truth now. Whoever believes in me has real life, eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna bread in the desert and died, but now here is bread that truly comes down out of heaven. Anyone eating this bread will not die, ever. I am the bread, living bread, who came down out of heaven. Anyone who eats this bread will live and forever. The bread that I present to the world so that it can eat and live is myself, this flesh and blood self. I can imagine the disciples might have been going, oh, I wish he'd just um, kind of back off a bit. This is getting a bit uncomfortable. Then can I have the next one, please? At this, the Jews started fighting amongst themselves. How can this man serve up his flesh for a meal? But Jesus didn't give an inch. Only insofar as you eat and drink flesh and blood, the flesh and blood of the Son of Man, do you have life within you. The one who brings a hearty appetite to this eating and drinking has eternal life and will be fit and ready for the final day. My flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. By eating my flesh and drinking my blood, you enter into me and I into you. In the same way that the fully alive father sent me here and I live because of him. So the one who makes a meal of me lives because of me. Obviously, I'm just rereading it really. Chris had read it to us, but this is the message and I think it brings it home even more, eating my flesh and drinking my blood. I think even for us, it makes you recoil a bit 
and you feel a bit like, oh, that's not very comfortable. For them, it was absolute anathema. It was scandalous because, if you know, you bought all the kosher things with Jewish food. They had very strict rules that they must never eat. They could only eat certain parts of animals, and they must never eat anything that had blood in it. They had to, the, the animals had to be killed, especially the blood had to be drained away. The meat had to be soaked because blood was something the Jews must never, ever eat. So Jesus is saying something completely outrageous to them. So surprise, surprise, they get very angry. Uh, And on hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is tough teaching. Who can accept it? Jesus just doesn't give up. Um, And then we get to that very sad verse where it says, from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. And I think this is a really sad verse because Jesus turns to his disciples and says, you do not want to leave too, do you? I was thinking about Jesus in the temptations. It must have been very, it could have been, couldn't it? Very easy for him at this point. People are leaving. People are mumbling. There must have been a bit of his human side, surely, that thought, actually, I could just turn bread. I I could make bread from nothing. I can turn water into wine. I could have thousands of people following me. We might even defeat the Romans, which is what they wanted. But he knew what his calling was. And then you get the amazing thing from Peter, who says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. One of the books I looked at said, Peter says this through gritted teeth. (laughs) And I'm not sure about that, but maybe they knew they'd seen Jesus, that small group of people. They really knew who he was, but it was tough. So what on earth does it all mean, really? Why did Jesus say this incredibly offensive thing to them? I think he was trying to desperately bring home to them that he wasn't here just to perform miracles. He was here to eternally save them. And the only way of doing that was to go through the dreadful business of the cross of death and forgiveness for us like Matt was leading so many songs and the only way that we can have that forgiveness and eternal life is to absorb him to eat him to take him into us if you think about it um, when you eat a meal what do you do you don't just sort of sit and look at it do you I mean you have to actually pick it up Put it in your mouth, chew it, think about it, the saliva, everything, and get it into you. It becomes part of you. Does anybody know about the microbiome? I'm sure somebody knows about the microbiome. This current theory for virtually all ailments that we suffer from is all to do with the bacterial content in your gut. And it has links with mental health, with development, with all sorts of different things. And they're now saying that our diets, it's because of our Western diet that our microbiome is so unhealthy. That's why we've got higher rates of obesity. There's all sorts of things. So what goes into us, I mean, people always used to say, didn't they, you are what you eat. Well, actually, the only way we become like Jesus and get forgiven is actually to take him into us. So I was just thinking for a minute, we'll have a bit of light relief now. Um, Can I have the next one, please? I was thinking about the other things that we might turn to if we don't turn to Jesus. And I have a lot of confessions to make here. I might not ever be able to show my face again here, but I was thinking about the things that I turn to when I'm in trouble. And those are some of them. People that know me know that I'm quite obsessed with quite a lot of stuff, and it does include exercise. 
And my trainers, those trainers, go on every single morning of every single day of the year. And when the gym is shut on Christmas Day, I have to walk up to Dunallan instead, which is a pain. But I cannot live if I have not had my trainers on and gone for a long walk. And then I might need to walk somewhere else. And when we go on holiday, my poor family have this mad walking woman with them. So that's one thing. The other little thing you might be able to see up there is my credit card. And that's another thing. When I'm down or low, I go shopping. I, I, I just think, oh, I just think I'll just buy um, just something. It could be in Lakeland Plastics. It could be some ridiculous piece of kitchen equipment. It could equally be something in Marks and Spencers, which that card is. Often, in my head, I'm even saying, I shall send that back. It's some kind of comfort mechanism. The other thing is the gingerbread men. I do eat other foods. Other foods are available. But um, when I'm down or worried, I eat. And I sometimes find myself, I have a difficult phone call. I found myself marching up and down my kitchen, unaware of the fact that I've opened the kitchen cupboard and I'm stuffing my face while on the phone. And I suddenly think, what am I doing? Can I have the next one, please? This is one of my parcels arrived by the internet. And the next one is, guess what? Yes. Who was making a cake this morning at 6.30 a.m.? And who was finishing that cake at 6.20 this evening? Because that's my other default, is make a cake. Okay, there's nothing probably inherently wrong with those things. But it just brings home to me how readily... I turn to other things when actually the only thing that is going to get us through is Jesus, isn't it? It's the only thing at the end of the day. Um, I think I'm going to do the, the next two bits first, and then we'll just come back to that before I finish. What is the time? Are we all right? Okay. If we could just go on to the next thing. I was thinking about, oh, that's the other thing I do, do resort to. These people, an awful lot, I should have said, when I'm in trouble, I do pray, but I also go to these people who are my amazing Spigging Awesomes. As you can see, a little bit younger, but just as Spigging Awesome as they always were. Yes. Okay, next one. This is just a couple of people who I thought about who they definitely could say, who else can I go to? I can only go to Jesus because their lives were, had awful tragedies in them. And it proves the point, really, of how... If we don't have God, I don't know how we do get through life. So this is Gordon Wilson. You're probably too young, a lot of you. But in 1987, Gordon Wilson and his daughter, Marie, who were 20, were attending a Remembrance Day service in Enniskillen in Ireland. The pair were buried under rubble by a bomb detonated by the provisional IRA. Wilson survived, but Marie died from her injuries. Later, he was interviewed by the media, expressing grief for his daughter and a measure of forgiveness for those who took her life. Sorry, the second part of this hasn't come out on there, but anyway. We were both thrown forward, rubble and stones, and whatever, whatever in and around us and over us and under us, and I was aware of a pain in my right shoulder, and I shouted to Marie, was she all right? And she said, yes. She found my hand and said, is that your hand, Dad? Now, remember, we were under six foot of rubble, and I said, are you all right? And she said, yes. But she was shouting in between. Three of the four times I asked her, she always said, yes, she was all right. And when I asked her the fifth time, are you all right? She said, Daddy, I love you very much. And they were the last words she spoke to me. Sorry, there's a bit more. She still held my hand quite firmly, and I kept shouting at her, Marie, are you all right? But there wasn't a reply. We were there for about five minutes, and someone came and pulled me out. And I said, I'm all right, but for God's sake, my daughter is lying right beside me, and I don't think she's too well. She's dead. She didn't die there. She died later. The hospital was magnificent, truly impressive, and our friends have been great. 
but I miss my daughter, and we shall miss her. But I bear no ill will. I bear no grudge. She was a great wee lassie. She loved her profession. She was a pet, and she's dead. But she's in heaven, and we will meet again. Don't ask me, please, for a purpose. I don't have a purpose. I don't have an answer. But I know there has to be a plan. If I didn't think that, I would commit suicide. It's part of a greater plan, and God is good. We shall meet again. I've lost my daughter, and we shall miss her. But I bear no ill will. I bear no grudge. Dirty sort of talk is not going to bring her back to life. I shall pray for these people, the IRA bombers, tonight and every night. May God forgive them. I, to me, I just thought that's the extraordinary story of someone who ate Jesus' flesh and drank his blood, isn't it? They had his life-giving, forgiving spirit within them, and it gave them comfort. He only has the words of eternal life, the only hope. And could I have the next one, Tom? This is a, um, a guy who has the most amazing name. I was just wondering if I might have a grandchild called Horatio Spafford. But anyway, I somewhat doubt it, but, you know, it could be good, couldn't it? Horatio Spafford. He looks pretty, doesn't he? You might know him. I didn't, but anyway. He was a prosperous lawyer and devout Presbyterian church elder in 1871. Uh, he lived in Chicago, and he was a very successful guy, but unfortunately there was a massive fire in Chicago, which destroyed all the city, and he lost a lot of business. They had a really tough time. And he sent his wife and four daughters, four daughters, uh, on a boat to go to Europe for a holiday. He was obviously fairly rich, I would imagine, for those days. And that boat was torpedoed going across the Atlantic, and it went down. And all four of his daughters drowned. His wife did survive. Um, he, well, one can only begin to imagine what he was going through. He obviously went post-haste to try and get to, to meet his wife and went across the Atlantic. They went over the area where the boat went down. And as they went over the area that the boat went down, he wrote the next words. Can I have the next one? You, you probably know this, don't you, this song? Do you know this one? You can't see it. Can you? You can't expand it. Uh, I shall find it. When peace like a river. Oh, it's gone. <laughs> okay. I have got it written somewhere. Does anybody? It, it goes on. It's the refrain is, it is well, it is well with my soul. Do you know that song? Uh, can you put it back up as it was, Tom, if you can't? Because I think I can probably read it. In fact, I've got it somewhere. Here it is. When peace like a river attendeth my way. This is this guy going over the water where his four daughters have drowned. When sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say it is well. It is well with my soul. It is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. It is well. It is well with my soul. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul, it is well with my soul. I just can't credit that anyone could write those words, having just lost all their four daughters. But he genuinely believes it, and that is actually what we're promised, isn't it? That it will be well with our soul. Whatever we go through, we're not promised an easy life. When Jesus was speaking to the, the people, I think he was desperately trying to draw their attention to the seriousness of it all and to his role in it. He was facing a devastating, terribly painful, tortuous end on the cross, abandoned by everybody and God. He was going to go through, through that. 
And yet they're fussing on about having bread to eat, aren't they? But when Jesus really dwells in us, that's the kind of peace that we can have. The even more awful is that they were reunited and they subsequently had um, one more child that was a boy. And four years later, he died. Whether they could still sing that hymn, I don't know. But I guess they probably could because they knew that eternal life is what really, really matters. Just before I finish, I just wondered, what does it mean for us in real life? How do we eat the bread and drink the wine of Jesus? I think it must be all the things we try and do. I think it must be reading our Bibles, trying to pray, talking to each other, looking at creation, being in church listening. I think one of my big, big problems is I don't listen. I just yak on. I think being quiet, welcoming in the Holy Spirit. I'm sure you might have loads of other ones, but it's the key, isn't it, for us? I mean, last time when I was speaking, it was about Christ in us, the hope of glory, funnily enough. It's really the same thing, isn't it? But brought to us in a very in-your-face version. So I think all I want to say is, to whom should we go? There isn't really anyone else the key of life. But like you have to eat a meal, we have to take it. All Jesus wants is us to do that. I think one of the reasons that the Jews hated it was because they won it was against all their rules. But they loved having rules, didn't they? They wanted to earn. And this message is so clear. There is nothing we can do to earn it. We just have to receive. But we do have to receive. Thank you.